Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Joe McCormick. And I'm Christian Sager. Hey, Robert Lamb, our uh, host of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, isn't with us this week. This is our first solo flight. But if you listen to the episode that we released earlier this week, you will know that we are doing a two-parter on the science behind the X-Files, right? That's right. All right, and if you didn't catch our last episode on the science of the X-Files, that was part one. You should probably go back and listen to that one first. It came out earlier this week. It was our, our first one where the, we, we introduced the concept of the X-Files mm-hmm. for people who aren't fans of the show, who haven't seen it themselves. So you can sort of follow along In with fact, the we ideas. Just, we just got done being on Periscope and Somebody asked us who they wanted to know. I've never seen the show before. Can I still listen to these episodes? And the answer is absolutely. Yeah, we really hope they will be interesting anyway. Mm -hmm. But especially so if you're a fan of the show, even if you're not a fan of the show, uh, we hope there are enough interesting ideas to, to keep you on the hook through this whole discussion. So uh, if you want to go back and check out that first episode first, we recommend that. If not, and you're here and you just want to listen, okay. feel free to continue. Yeah, because we're going to roll on in. We've got, we're going to talk about bugs and insects in the X-Files. We're going to talk about how hypnosis, which I know is one of Joe's favorite topics uh, <laughs> in the X-Files. And uh, we're going to talk about the possibility of alien hybrids, right? Yeah. So just to revisit the impetus for doing this episode, we're doing it because the X-Files are coming back. Mm. And I believe it's Sunday, January 24th. They are coming back to television and we're going to get a new X-Files miniseries with Gillian Anderson, with David Duchovny. All the gang's getting all that together. Mitch Pelegi. I hope so. Playing Skinner. Oh, he's there. He's got a big old beard. I can't wait. Is he bringing his muscles? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He's probably been working out for the last six months. I love Mitch Pelegi. Um, And we want to mention also at the top one more thing about how... uh, we brought in a bunch of sources on our research this time, but but our primary resource over this past couple of episodes has been a cool book called The Science of the X-Files by Gene Cavalos, who is an astrophysicist and mathematician, uh, now a science and science fiction writer. So this is a really fun book. It's been a lot of help to us. It was written in 1998, so we've, we've had to check on a bunch of things and, and, and see what needs a little bit of updating, but, but that's been a big help. And I think we should get right into it because... I am just jonesing to talk about bugs. Yeah, I mean, uh, insects are clearly a big theme in the X-Files. They show up all over the place. We've got uh, the classics from uh, the first season with Darkness Falls, War of the Copperphages, which is one of my favorite episodes, which is all about cockroaches uh, invading a small town. <laughs> and uh, And then, of course, the general myth arc of the show has bees galore. Right. Bees feature pretty prominently in the movie, too. Right. So I really wanted to talk about Darkness Falls, but unfortunately, I don't know if there's all that much great to say about the science behind it. So the basic idea of the episode is that Mulder, Scully, and some tagalongs go into the woods where there have been some people disappearing, and they get assaulted by photophobic wood mites that kill people by cocooning them in mm. the forest. I believe Titus Welliver, the actor Titus Welliver, is one of the one of the tagalongs. I don't know who that is. Oh, he was in like Deadwood. He's in a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. He was in Transformers: Age of Extinction. Oh, well, I remember <laughs> that one. Who did he play in that? Uh, he was like the bad FBI agent who wanted to be mean to Optimus Prime. I don't remember he, who that he, was. If you saw him, you'd know him in a minute. He's a character actor that's been a ton of stuff. Did he get killed by the uh, wood mites? Yeah. 
Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we eventually find out that these, uh, that these attackers are some sort of mite or something that grows in the trees and they are allergic to light. So you can protect yourself by surrounding yourself in light. But of course, a lot of the plot of the episode hinges on they, uh, the fact that Mulder and Scully have a generator that's running out and mm-hmm. can they keep the lights on long enough to survive through the night? But these things, kill their victims, I don't know if they kill them by cocooning them or just they kill them and then cocoon them, but there's, a, mm. there's, I think there's a part where live people are pulled out of a cocoon, so it seems it's yeah. the cocooning process that kills them. I, I got the impression that like once they're cocooned, their bodies get desiccated somehow by these, mm-hmm. by these bugs. So I wanted to find out if there were any really cool real science facts about bugs that kill by cocooning. And there are no real killer wood mites that I know of. Okay. But one interesting thing I did find was not about an insect, but about a spider that kills insects with cocoons. Wow. So this okay. was a, this was a July 2008 blog post I found by a science writer named Ed Yong, who's a writer I like. I follow him and he, he talks about this group of spiders called the Uloborids, which use their silk line, and these are his words, as a murderous garbage compactor. <laughs> okay. All right. So I'm kind of imagining that, that does this does the silk from their their web kind of cut through the enemies as it's as it constricts? It crushes. Them. Oh, it crushes okay. them to death. Okay. So most spiders kill with venom, and those that spin webs, they use their webs for like locomotion, dropping down from something, or for traps to catch insects in. Mm. But a scientist named William Eberhard from the University of Costa Rica noticed that the Eloborids spend more than an hour wrapping their prey in more than 80 meters of silk. Oh, so they they catch an insect, yeah. and then they just start a wrapping, and they just keep going. They wrapping just cover it. it. Okay. Yeah, wrapping it and wrapping it. Uh, one species in particular called uh, Philoponella vicina uses so much silk at such great compression that it crushes the insect inside, making, quote, its legs break and its eyes buckle inward. So this sounds like some kind of like medieval torture device like uh, that, that would be used to get people to talk somehow. Yeah, it's the spider version of the scavenger's daughter. Yeah, exactly. Scavenger's daughter was what I was thinking of. So, OK, so darkness falls. Maybe these are like we never I don't think see what these insects actually look like other than just like a haze of green. Yeah, they just kind of show up as dots in the light. But but maybe they're tiny, tiny green spiders that weave very strong cocoons that squeeze the life out of their victims. I don't think it's very plausible, but but imagine if. I mean, one thing that's certainly true is that spider webbing is, spider silk, is incredibly strong for its size. You know, it's, it's very fine, but for uh for how fine it is it it has uh, amazing tensile strength mm. and so maybe if you got a whole whole bunch of arachnids working in tandem to cocoon a person like this with super high compression i don't yeah. know could that cause injury maybe i'd like maybe. to uh, i'd like to imagine it could yeah maybe that's where they're going with the episode but they just didn't have the budget to quite show the the <laughs> incredible 80 meters of silk per victim then again, I don't know if uh, if the cocooning in the episode really uh, compresses the victim all that yeah. hard. It seems like the, yeah, I think you're right. Clear. They get dried out or something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. But another episode that has some really, really great bug science in it is War of the Coprophages. Yeah. War of the Coprophages is written by one of our favorite X-Files writers, Darren Morgan. He only wrote like four or five episodes. But, but they're, they're like all, all my favorite episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and in this one, it, you know, general premise is uh, Mulder goes to a 
small town in which cockroaches are swarming all over people and killing them. And he's coming up with all these various ways that he thinks that the the cockroaches are doing it, usually supernatural or, or, or fantastic in some way. So one of the things we should mention in the title is, well, what does the term coprophage mean? Oh, well, a coprophage uh, it means one who feeds on excrement because cockroaches eat their own and other species. Nice. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a lovely term. So cockroaches aren't the only coprophages, but they are a, no. they are a type of coprophage. Nope, I've I've heard that uh, some of our co- uh, coworkers here at House Stuff Works are coprophages. That is inappropriate. <laughs> I've got a great insult for somebody next next time somebody's got a got a really obnoxious grin that this will get past the censors though you you tell them they have a coprophaging grin. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So okay, so this episode basically, you know, they 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 run around trying to come up with all these ways and it's everything from like the coprophages, the cockroaches are aliens to their tiny little robots, right? And yeah. and Scully basically debunks every single thing he comes up with over the phone. Over the phone, it's great. Yeah, Scully yeah. uh in the episode Mulder's exploring this town and doing all chasing down all the leads and mm-hmm. I think Scully's at home eating ice cream. Yeah, she's hanging out with her then, dog Queequeg. Right. She just uh she talks to Mulder on the phone and debunks Bunks all of his theories over the uh, uh-huh. over the lines. Yeah. So here's what we do know about cockroaches, though, and the possibility of them swarming all over us and killing us. Right? Cockroaches breed very quickly. We know that. We know anybody who's encountered a cockroach in their home is going to be aware of this stuff. They run very fast, especially for their their size. And we know that they carry bacteria easily because the bacteria in their feces, which let's remember they eat remains viable for a long period of time. Uh, and yes, uh, some people, like myself, are allergic to cockroaches. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, especially uh, if they're exposed more often to them. So Now, is that a allergy, like allergic to their bites or allergic to, I don't know, some kind of particle dispersed in the air? Yeah, I believe that it's um, remnants of their exoskeleton. So, uh, how do I explain this? I had an allergy test done last year where they basically do that thing where they line up your arm and they shoot little uh, uh, injections of particles yeah. into your, your skin to find out what you're uh, in, uh, what you're allergic to. Little allergen stickers. <clears throat> exactly. Skin wheel response. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they do it on my, well, at least in my case, they did it on my arm and on my back. And cockroaches were one of the, like, 40 things. Uh, and, it, and it welled up. So... Uh, I don't know. I haven't been exposed to that many cockroaches, so I don't know where this particular trait came from. But what what use are you supposed to make of that information? It's like, well, don't get in a bathtub full of cockroaches. I I think it's like more along the lines of uh, this is an allergen that uh, if you if you live in a place where there are are known to be a lot of cockroaches and there's just no way that you're going to get rid of them, you should move. You should or take medicine or you know um, one of the things they pitched to me there was that. Therapy, uh, I don't know if you've heard of this, the allergen therapy where they slowly expose you more and more to the thing that you're allergic to. No way. Yeah. Where they like inject you with It's with injections, yeah. With cockroaches? Well, I mean, <laughs> it's particulate matter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know that they have like a bag of cockroaches in the back and they're just like grinding them up with a mortar pestle. <laughs> they, they put them in their, uh, in their Vitamix and yeah, right, put right. a little in the syringe. Oh man. Well, I can only imagine given all the things that I was found to be allergic to how disgusting that that mixed bag would be. <laughs> 
But anyways, yeah, so people are allergic to them. But here's the thing. Cockroaches don't usually swarm, right? They right. Don't, we don't find, like, hundreds of cockroaches swarming on a live person and just devouring them like they it do It seems like episode. they don't usually move toward you either. You flip the lights on and they For all the scurry part. away. Yeah, usually what it is, if you see a large group of them moving at one time, usually what that is is that they've found a suitable home, like, let's say, a sewage plant, right? Uh, and... The cockroaches, an individual cockroach, can release a pheromone that will alert other roaches to its location and to say, like, hey, look, we've got this whole hotel we can move into now, right? Um, so there's that. And I also want to mention something else that we've talked about. Uh, I know you've talked about on Forward Thinking, one of our other shows here. Uh, it's a show that Joe does with Jonathan Strickland and Lauren Vogelbaum about future science. Mm-hmm. Um and I talked about it on a, on another one of our shows called Stuff of Genius, which is that uh, you can actually control cockroaches by putting backpacks on them. These little tiny backpacks that uh, have electrodes that connect to their brain. And uh, there's a there there actually was a Kickstarter uh, uh, two years ago that would allow you to use your phone once you've hooked up a cockroach in such a way in order to basically drive the cockroach around. Right. Right. Uh, and this technology was actually developed by a guy named Dr. Isao Shimoyama at the University of Tokyo. But the Kickstarter was basically uh, coming up with a way to, to make this uh, sort of a do-it-yourself science kit for kids, I guess. I, although I'd be terrified of the idea of kids just like trying to stick electrical probes into a cockroach's head. Uh, anyways, it's totally possible to do this. And one of the reasons why is because we're theorizing that cockroach bodies are actually one of the best ways that we might have to explore space. So uh, a a robot cockroach or a cockroach that you're controlling with a little iPhone backpack uh, might be an ideal way. And Mulder, even in this episode, says something like he thinks the cockroaches have been sent from some alien civilization to (laughs) to uh, explore Earth. Right. Right. Um, So we've already built cockroach-esque robots to explore volcanoes. Uh, They dispose of mines and clean them up, and they also clean out nuclear power plants. Yeah, I've actually heard about the idea of using roach-like robots to to search in rubble after earthquakes for survivors. That seems like a good idea as well, right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, so, uh, well, the reason why is because there are multiple legs and the way that their, uh, you know, nervous system is set up. They offer both stability and mobility. Uh, and they also have centralized and decentralized control systems. So the central controls of their legs, you know, it, it governs all their legs, their whole body's movement, but they also have decentral control on each leg, allowing it to act independently. <laughs> so I can see now why, like Mulder, you know, if Mulder knew this, I don't know if he was uh, familiar with the, that uh, doctor's research at the time, but that he would think, oh, yeah, maybe this is like a little uh, probe for an alien civilization or something like that. Maybe that's how we'll probe other civilizations in the future. We'll send spaceships full of robot cockroaches. That makes a good point, and that actually ties into something I know I've said on this show before, and it's an opinion I've held for a while now, that when we encounter an alien civilization, I don't think we're going to meet them. Right. I think yeah. we're going to meet their technology. Right, whatever they send our I mean, way. Yeah. They're much more likely, I mean, much more likely, like I actually know, but <laughs> <laughs> my, my my gut feeling is that 
what would be more probable is that they would send feelers out throughout mm-hmm. the galaxy, that mm-hmm. there would be sort of uh, uh, unmanned probes. So weaponized bees, I think, is our best transition next, right? Yeah, this has been a recurring theme in the show that's a lot of fun, actually. It's it's in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's in some classic myth arc episodes like Heron Volk and Zero Sum. And uh, the bees appear sometimes as vectors for the intentional spread of a disease like yeah. smallpox. Yeah, smallpox but, is a big theme in the X-Files. Yeah. yeah, but they also sometimes appear as what appears to be just a direct attack weapon stinging people to death. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, you know, they float into town and sting the enemies of the conspiracy to death like this mobile cloud assassin, which is a... Decent idea. They're multifunctional. And I wanted to look into the possibility of using bees like this as a weapon in in the ways envisioned in the X-Files. And this has actually come up, you reminded me uh, before we came in here, this has come up on Stuff to Blow Your Mind before when we were talking about uh, Wolfsbane and Aconite. I guess I theorized that you could have a bee pollinate an aconite flower and and then uh, potentially sting somebody and spread the aconite. And we actually had a listener write in and say that that is absolutely not possible. With a good explanation yeah, of why, too. They did. And we addressed it in a listener mail episode. But yeah. Right. Uh, so, yeah, there there are many diseases that are spread by insects. That's fairly obvious. Uh, viruses spread by arthropods are often known as arboviruses. And these, uh, they tend to be spread by blood-sucking insects that bite or puncture the host animal's skin, mm-hmm. like so mosquitoes about, right. or fleas or ticks. lice or ticks, yeah, uh, and not by stinging insects like bees. Mm. So I would say that, in principle, it doesn't seem impossible to engineer bees that deliver a virus via their sting, but I, I couldn't find any examples of anything like this in the real world. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and I couldn't really imagine... Also, why this would be done, because just let me back up and get into it a little bit here. Okay, I'm with you. So spreading smallpox is a good way to kill lots of people, if that's your goal as as the cigarette smoking man or some other conspiracy commanding figure. If you want to cause terror, havoc and kill millions, you could you could use a bioweapon. You could spread a very deadly germ like smallpox. Mm-hmm. So smallpox is the the variola virus. It's highly contagious and uh, and it and it kills lots of people. I remember reading a stat that it kills like one in four people who get it. Hmm. So what does Cavalos have to say about uh, bees and smallpox in her book? Well, she says, you know, she's thinking about the question, could a bee be engineered to uh, inject a virus like smallpox in its sting? And she speaks to a Dr. W.K. Yoklik, and uh, Yoklik says, basically, scientists can never rule out anything. <laughs> okay. It's <laughs> kind of a vague answer. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Just threw the whole thousands of years worth of research right out the window. Oh, but I, I, I guess it's, <laughs> it's an appropriate point with this yeah. topic because there's nothing, there's nothing that says it would be impossible to get a virus into the venom gland sure. yeah. of a bee, but it just doesn't seem like... It doesn't seem probable. Yeah, it, it doesn't seem like the best way to go about it either. So, uh, Cavallo speculates that the bees in the X-Files are the species Apis mellifera scutellata, which is the African honeybee, often sometimes known in the alarmist press as the killer bees. 
Yeah, and this was uh, right at the height of the X Files. This was, I think, when the hysteria about killer bees invading oh, America was really. Do you, at do you its remember peak. this in the nineties? Oh, yeah, the yeah. news stories, killer bees. Yeah, they're gonna they're gonna come and they're gonna. I, I believe they were supposed to come up uh, from the south, right? And they were gonna kill everybody in Texas first or something. Yeah, I think the the idea was that they were introduced to South America from Africa. They became mm-hmm. an invasive species when they got loose, and they spread up uh, from the south. Over the continent and that they were, they were super dangerous. I, I think that was overstated. Right. I mean, they, right. they, they can be dangerous in sure. a bad situation. Uh, the, what I've read is that their venom isn't any more dangerous than that of other bees, but they, they are reportedly more aggressive in their swarming and stinging behavior. So they're just more likely okay. to get really worked up and keep chasing you and attacking. Mm-hmm. And that, that lines up with what we see of like the bee attacks in X-Files. It's right. Pretty much like, like I, I think I remember like somebody walks into a room full of them and they just all immediately attack this person. Right. Uh, And so uh, what happens when a bee stings you? Well, there's one particular type of bee in the colony that stings you. It's it's not going to be the, the male drone or the queen that's usually stinging you, but the female worker bee. And her stinger is a modified ovipositor. So it's the same organ that in a queen becomes the, the egg laying organ. Mm-hmm. But in these, in these sterile sisters in the, in the sterile worker bees, it turns into these barbed needles that stab you as the bee furiously pumps in venom. And then usually the worker bee dies after this within a couple of hours. Wow. So it's, it's literally the the tiny death. So yeah, you can you can imagine why it would seem appealing as a as a sort of uh, infectious agent delivery system because it's literally injecting you, kind of like a hypodermic needle. If okay. somebody wanted to inject you with smallpox with a hook in it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But bees don't get smallpox, and even if they did, it probably wouldn't infect you right. through a sting because it's not delivering. It's not just designed to do that. It delivers the venom. I believe this was what the uh, our listener who uh, wrote in about the aconite. It's this, along the same lines of reasoning that even if it digested it, it's it's not the, the like organ isn't even connected to the rest of its uh, system. Yeah. So bees are not a good candidate for delivering smallpox, but that does not mean you can't. Use bees as weapons. Thank God. In fact, there is a fascinating history of humans doing this very thing. Uh, I ch- I checked out this book called Six Legged Soldiers Using Insects as Weapons of War by Jeffrey A. Lockwood, and and this book is really interesting so far. I, I look forward to reading the rest of it. Uh, Lockwood chronicles many historical claims of insect warfare. Uh, or to give it an academically respectable name, entomological warfare. Okay. E W. Okay. And generally, Lockwood mentions that there there are three basic ways you can use insects to attack people and and cause havoc. One is what we've been talking about, the transmission of pathogenic microbes. So throwing bodies with plague-ridden fleas over the walls of a city or something like that would be an example there. Mm -hmm. Or you can use them for the destruction of crops and livestock. Mm. That's a big one. A lot of people don't think about it. Or you can use them. Favorite methods of destruction. You can use them for a way they show up in in the X Files. Also, just direct attacks on humans. You know, sick 'em bees. Mm And he, he notes that in this last, uh, in this last item, just direct attacks on humans, bees are pretty good soldiers because when you think about other war animals like dogs and elephants and horses, they all as higher mammals have a self-preservation drive that makes them, in Lockwood's words, quote, prone to desertion in the midst of combat. Yeah. It's a survival instinct. Yeah. Yeah. But a swarm of attacking worker bees does not have that preservation instinct. Mm-hmm. 
And they've evolved in a very different way from mammals with teeth and claws. Worker bees are sterile. They don't reproduce. So they don't particularly value their own survival, but they viciously attack in defense of the one among them who can reproduce, the queen. So if something bad happens to the nest, they will self-sacrificially fly out and attack to protect the queen. So this is interesting because I just got done working on a piece for How Stuff Works about how you can epigenetically control ants. And when I was talking to the lead researcher on this, she was telling me that they're also looking into research with bees in similar ways. And by uh, using the royal jelly that's fed to the queen bees, you can sometimes, uh, you know, potentially manipulate the bees into thinking they're protecting the queen when they're protecting somebody else. Maybe maybe that's the science behind this. Wow. Yeah. So this really you really could recruit a bee army in this way. Uh, theoretically, this is <laughs> I, I don't want to the, the research overstate. Well, the researcher I spoke to hadn't done this, but she was hypothesizing. <laughs> yeah. It's fun to dream. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Lockwood speculates that people throughout prehistory possibly used bees as weapons, and and he gives the example that early human combat might have sometimes involved hurling bees' nests or wasps' nests at a group of enemies. So this is like before we figured out fire. It was like... Maybe not fire, but before we had writing. <laughs> no, I know, but I'm just imagining, like, how are we going to attack them? Just grab that pile of bees and throw it at them. Well, he has some interesting suggestions. So mm-hmm. he says this would be an effective way of, say you have a bunch of enemies, an enemy tribe that's hiding inside a cave or a hut or some enclosure. Okay. And, you know, it's risky to run in there at them. Yeah. But what if you could drive them out by hurling a bee's nest? It's a grenade. Now, Lockwood notes that uh, there's not much physical evidence of this, so it remains mostly speculation, though an interesting one to think about what what weapons would have been available to uh, people in prehistory. Uh, and so he, he's thinking through this and he's like, well, you know, with the technology available to them at the time, they, they could have probably done this by, say, uh, harvesting a bee or wasp nest at night. If they approach it during the nighttime, the insects are slowed down by cooler temperatures. Okay. Or if it's people who have mastered fire... They can use smoke to calm the yeah. bees, and then they could insert the bees into a woven basket or sack, and then just kind of like throw it open you know, inside the enemy's cave. Bee sack. Exactly. Uh, or you could plug the openings up with mud or grass. Hmm. Okay. Wow. That probably wouldn't kill the people that you're attacking, but it would be, well, maybe unless there are these uh, killer bees that we were speaking about earlier, but. Well, maybe, but a lot of times the point of using bees as direct attack is Mm. not to kill the enemy because of action. But yeah, it's sort of, it's a terrorizing or terrifying idea, you know, Mm -hmm. it it depresses the enemy, it causes fear, panic, and and it causes bad tactical maneuvers. I'll get into that in just a second. I believe that this is something that you can do in that video game Bioshock. Yes, you can. I'm pretty sure, right? Yeah, you can throw bees at your enemy and they they all start panicking. Uh, So once historians start making records of ancient warfare, entomological warfare definitely appears on the scene, including bees and wasps. For example, Lockwood says that uh, the Tiv people of Nigeria developed what he refers to as a bee cannon. Mm. So this was bees loaded into a large hollow horn, which could be pointed facing the enemy in battle and then shaken to release swarms in the opposing forces direction. And uh, according to a, a book I found called World History of Beekeeping and Honey Hunting by Ava Crane, 
Uh, it's also suggested that if if the enemies were close enough, the Tiv soldiers would try to pour sweet smelling powder on their enemies. And okay. the idea was that this would attract the bees. Hmm. OK. Another really interesting ancient use of this is that uh, Lockwood mentions that in the Mayan sacred text Popol Vuh, it tells of a Mayan battle strategy that involved building a fake warrior dummy with a head made out of a hollow gourd covered with a headdress. Okay. And when the enemy rushed in and smashed the heads of these dummies, they would discover not only that they were not real people, they were traps. The hollow gourd heads were filled with stinging insects, either wasps or bees, and then they'd just angrily swarm out and attack. This would cause a chaotic retreat, and during the route, the Mayan warriors would run in and fall upon the fleeing enemy and destroy them. So, cigarette smoking man, a student of history, right? This is where he proposed the the great usage of bees for the alien uh, invasion. Well, you know, the X Files is one of the earliest examples I can think of of uh, people talking, uh, uh, tying government conspiracies into the the end of the Mayan long calendar. You know, mm-hmm. which they supposedly said was in 2012. Yeah, yeah, and we've talked about bees before on um on the show Brain Stuff that you and I both write for. There was an episode that our colleague Lauren Vogelbaum did that was about uh, colony collapse disorder, mm-hmm. and uh, I'd, I'd be curious how uh, you might be able to incorporate that into X Files conspiracy mythos. Huh? Yeah, I'm sure. I bet it'll show up in the new series. What Maybe do you it will. Bet? Yeah. What do you want to bet? Yeah. But let's put money to it. No. We'll we'll find out if it <laughs> yeah. does. We'll find out in two weeks. Right. Uh, so a couple more interesting facts about bees in the ancient world. Uh, the ancient Greek military writer Aeneas Tacticus wrote in a uh, an influential work in the 4th century BCE called How to Survive Under Siege, which sounds like a good read. Yeah, that's uh, a, it's a surviving watching that Steven Seagal movie. <laughs> Touche. Uh, no, no, he gives this cool tactic. So he says, okay. if you're in a city that's under siege and the army outside is digging tunnels under your walls yeah. to get into the city, you should you should meet the tunnels and chuck some bees and wasps down into the tunnels with the enemy soldiers. These guys just have bees like at the ready, though, it seems like like at, they've just got like pockets full of bees. Well, they did it first because mm-hmm. uh, another thing that Lockwood points out in his book is that the Romans used beehives as a common catapult payload. Okay. So they put beehives <laughs> in a catapult and then throw it at enemy fortifications. And he says that they did it so much that it might have contributed to a documented decline in the number of beehives found in the Roman Empire toward the end, the late period in the empire. Well, you can't say they weren't creative. But to bring it back to smallpox, if we're talking about warfare today, just using bees as direct attack weapons is not going to be especially powerful compared to lots of other things you could do. Mm-hmm. A violent terrorizing attack you can do with bullets, bombs, poison gas, and other chemical weapons. Uh, the only reason I can imagine a modern conspiracy would want to use bees as a direct attack weapon is maybe just for effect, because it's like a weird and frightening image to hurt enemy morale. Yeah, well, I mean, I think in the X-Files, the idea was that it was something that you just wouldn't even suspect was a weapon, right? That's right. kind of part of it. Uh, They're all around us, man. Yeah, exactly. Or that you'd already been stung and infected with the smallpox virus and you didn't even know it. Uh, yeah, I don't know. 
I, I, it sounds to me like based on what you've what you've said that it would have been far more effective for them to just use mosquitoes. Exactly right. Yeah, I think it would be much more effective if they were going to try to engineer a, an insect delivered weapon against the people of Earth. It mm-hmm. would be, make much more sense to use mosquitoes or fleas as a disease vector right. or to introduce a crop destroying pest mm-hmm. uh, like, you know, locusts or medflies or something to just ruin all of our food crops. Okay. And so if you're the cigarette smoking man, that is the more fruitful, pun intended, avenue <laughs> avenue of attack. Okay, well, why don't we take this opportunity to take a break? Mm-hmm. And when we come back, we're going to talk about one of the <laughs> one of the most disturbing episodes of the X Files that I've ever seen, and I think happened in the show's history. Okay, we're back. So we are going to talk about, very briefly, the episode of The X-Files called Home. Now, if you haven't seen this one, its I I would say it's the darkest episode of The X-Files I've ever seen. Oh, it was so disturbing. I I mean, there are parts of it that are kind of funny in retrospect. Yeah. But when you're actually watching it, it is messed up. It It, is like it's like they let the Texas Chainsaw Massacre uncensored onto network television. Well, one of the things I love about about this episode is that, yeah, it's definitely influenced by Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is too bad Robert isn't here with us because we know that's one of his favorite movies. But also that uh you don't actually see any of the violence. It's all implied. It's all off camera. But it is it just it is shot in such a way that it sticks in your head and your imagination fills in the blanks. I think Fox actually apologized for this episode. Is that right? They? Yeah. No, I didn't like know it that. was so disturbing that after they aired it, they were like, our bad. We're never going to do that again. Well, so the essential premise of home is that uh, I don't even remember where they are, what state they're in. I guess it doesn't matter. But uh, there's this uh, family that lives off sort of in the middle of nowhere in this small town. And it turns out that they are all the children of closely related parents who have a high incident of uh, genetic disease. Right. Mm-hmm. So they're all kind of like, uh, well, they're all in- incestual relatives, but they're also sort of crazy and uh, it's unclear, like, how they're all related in some ways, right? Yeah, I think it, this is playing on the old trope that if, uh, you know, if closely related relatives reproduce together, that their mm-hmm. offspring will will be messed up in one way or another. Well, so, yeah, so Cavalos actually, like, took a look at this because home is one of those... Pretty, I would say it's like one of those up there popular, uh, best of episodes of the X-Files. Whenever you look at those lists of like top 10, top 20 episodes. I think a lot of people just enjoy the perversity of the idea that an episode like this was aired on Fox in mm. the 1990s. I, I, I have to say that I really enjoyed it, you know, recently watching it. I, I think it holds up to any of our modern horror movies, even, you know, 20 years later. But, um, so Cavalos looks at this and she finds that, yeah, when you have related couples, each of them carry the same negative recessive traits, right? Which makes the chance that their child will inherit two copies of those traits even higher, right? Okay. So uh, at the time, this was in 98 when Cavellos wrote the book, 11.7% of offspring from first cousin marriages have a physical defect or had a physical defect. Whereas 8.5% of unrelated couples, people who, you know, were not cousins or brother or sister, uh, had 
these uh, similar physical defects. Oh, okay. So that seems like the difference isn't actually all that huge. Right. Yeah, exactly. But she goes on. 20% of children that are born from incest, so father-daughter relationships or brother-sister relationships, die in childhood. And 33% suffer disabilities. So it seems somewhere along there that there's a there's a uh, discrepancy between the definition of a physical defect and a disability, right? Because right. the percentages are a little different. Those are probably not the terms that we would use today to be sensitive about. I that, agree, like, yeah. Uh, uh, that's what's used in the literature at the time. Exactly. Probably. And and two, she calls out two in particular, Meckel-Gruber and New Laxova syndrome. And they're both mentioned in the episode. I believe there's a scene where they find, this is gruesome in the episode, they find a dead baby, I think, right? And Scully is like testing it and she just finds that it's got all of these uh diseases, all these genetic diseases inside. Yeah, and she those, says something like it, it's got like every 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 inherited yeah. disease you can have or something. Mm-hmm. Um so both of those, Meckelgruber and New Laxova, are caused by recessive genetic traits. And uh this you know the trait traits that go along with this include small malformed heads, uh and actually missing parts of the brain or spinal cord. And there are even some cases where there's a skin covered sac on the back of the head that has a malformed portion of the brain in it, along with deformed limbs. And that kind of lines up with what we saw of the little the baby monster that they find and that's dug up, right? Mm -hmm. The actual, uh, I guess, family and home are human looking, right? Yeah. Well, I wanted to take a look into this and see how it lined up with today's numbers. Uh, And there's a great article over on io9 that's called Why Inbreeding Really Isn't As Bad As You Think It Is. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta love io9 with those headline titles. That's clicky. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so they said, and this was uh, relatively recently, I want to say in the last two or three years, cousins breeding go from a 0.1% chance to a 25% chance of a genetic disease like cystic fibrosis. So I think that this is what, uh, cystic fibrosis is probably what Cavellos was referring to back in the 90s as, quote, physical defect, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very different from the numbers above. Uh, she, they also cite in that piece that there's a guy named Alan Biddles at Australia's Murdoch University, and he specifically studies incestual birth defects. He studied it for 30 years. Can you imagine that? That's your line of study. You go to work every morning and you're looking at that. He says, he's the expert on this, he says there's a 2% risk of birth defects in the general population, mm-hmm. okay? But there's a 4% chance in first cousin relationships. So you automatically say two, four, okay, so there's double the risk of birth defects, right? Well, or you could look at it the other way is what they say in this io9 article, that there's only a 96% chance that these children are born healthy, Mm -hmm. right? So maybe it depends on how you look at it. It's like a cup half empty, half full kind of thing, right? Um, So 96% of children born from first cousin relationships are just fine. But Biddles found that only 1.2% of them suffered from an increase in infant mortality rates. So that's significantly lower than what Cavellos was reporting back in the 90s. Huh. Yeah. Um, and this is a good opportunity for us to bring up what a chimera is. Uh-huh. Are you familiar with this from mythology, the, the chimera? 
the chimera, well, I mean, the chimera, I believe, combines different types of animals into the same animal. Right? Yeah, it's a good D&D monster. It's a part lion, part goat, and part dragon. But in the scientific sense, it's a, it's a genetic condition, right? That exactly. You've, you've incorporated the, the genome of multiple different uh, individuals into one body. Yep. It's an organism that has two different sets of DNA, usually originating from the fusion of different zygotes or eggs. Yeah. That's basically how you defined it. Uh-huh. And, and it's important to de- denote here a chimera, uh, in a human chimera is not to be mistaken for a mosaic. A mosaic is when an organism contains different populations of cells from a single zygote or egg. It's also not a hybrid, and this is important because we're going to talk a lot about hybrids later, and chimeras will come up again. Hybrids contain genetically identical cells from two different species, okay? So the reason I bring this up is Cavalos talks about the possibility, well, maybe uh, maybe all of this incestual relationship in the family and home led to them being chimeras, so they uh, have the tissues of multiple genotypes. Huh. Uh, and, and so there's this idea that they've got the DNA of two different people, uh, and it's possible that a fertilized twin egg was absorbed by its sibling, uh, and that these can then incorporate twins of different sexes, right? So you could be, uh, a male twin of a female twin, you could absorb your female twin, and, uh, Cavalos actually talks about instances where this has happened, and the, the person grows up and they find Part like reproductive organs in weird places inside their bodies from a totally different gender than what they they were born to. Huh. Yeah. So who knows? Maybe that's something that was going on with the home people and their their uh, crazy Texas Chainsaw Massacre ranch. Okay. Now I think it's time for us to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. But when we come back, we will be going into the depths of the human mind. You know, there's one great resolution you can make for the new year, and that's to maximize every minute and every dollar for your small business. Now, we actually know an easy way to do that, and it's Stamps.com. So just think about how much time you have wasted going to the post office, driving there, finding parking, fighting eagles in the parking lot. It's just crazy. Stamps.com is a better way to get postage. Just use what you already have, your own computer and your own printer, and that's all you need to get official U.S. postage for any letter and any package. And the mail carrier picks it right up, takes it away. It really works, and it's that easy. And right now, you can sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code STUFF for this special offer. It's a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes postage and the digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of their homepage and type in STUFF. That's S-T-U-F-F. We don't spell it differently here. That's Stamps.com. Enter STUFF. Okay, we're back. So, Joe, I got to ask you, after going over home and the science behind incest and birth defects, is there any way that I can just scrub my mind clean of this? Is Can I forget? Uh, uh, just push this out of my head? Nope, probably not. Really? But if the, if you're, I've seen Mulder do this many times on the TV show. Are you, are you sure? This is one of my favorite things that happens on the TV show. Okay. So imagine somebody wakes up in a field and they, they've got this. The field where I lay? 
Exa- no, the field where you died. Oh, the field where I died. Yeah, sorry. I mean, that was a up, really bad X Files joke. <laughs> they wake up in center field on okay. <laughs> a, on a baseball stadium, uh, and they they wake up and they've got some missing time. They've mm-hmm. got the problem. Oh no, some time disappeared from my life, and I and I can't figure out what happened. I have no memory of it. What does Mulder recommend? Well. I'm going to go with regression hypnosis. That's right. I we think got to have deep regression hypnosis. I'm still only catching up. I'm up to the beginning of the fifth season, and he's already done this four times. <laughs> uh, that And that's per – those are four episodes. I want to say in Jose Chung's From Outer and, Space, yeah. it's at least three times in that episode. He does right? it, yeah, in Jose Chung's, which is probably my favorite episode, Jose Chung's From Outer Space. He he does it to the same girl at least three yeah. times. Yeah. Uh, and so what what is the idea – of regression hypnosis. Well, as depicted in the episodes, and we're going to distinguish between what happens on the X-Files and what might happen in real life. Uh, on the episodes, you've got a hypnotist or some kind of uh, therapist who, who practices hypnotism who puts somebody into a hypnotized state. So they'll tell them to relax and and say some kind of like patterns of words that put them into an altered state of consciousness. Yeah. And then the person gets kind of dreamy and starts remembering things. Wait a minute. And, they, and the hypnotist says, where are you now? Okay. And the, the person under hypnosis says, I'm being lifted up above the ground and I'm floating through walls in a spacecraft and I'm laying there while the aliens do experiments on me. Mm. And this is what happens in the show. Previously, this person had no memory of an event. And then suddenly, by being hypnotized, they have access to memories that weren't available to them consciously mm-hmm. before. Yeah, this is um, connected to the satanic panic that was happening around the 80s as well. The same kind of thing. Uh, Robert and I talked about it in the episode we did on satanic panic. I believe the book that popularized this was called Michelle Remembers. Huh. Yeah, and it, it very much the same idea, except for instead of aliens, it was uh, demon worshippers. Nice. So in the early 1990s, when Chris Carter was first developing the idea of the X-Files, he got into the work of the Harvard psychiatrist John E. Mack. Okay. And John E. Mack was deep into the study of alien abductee experiences at the time. I think he got into it in the 1980s. So Mack worked personally with more than 200 different people who claimed to have experiences of alien abductions. He interviewed them and he tried to understand both their experiences and the effect of abduction experiences on personality, consciousness and worldview. Okay. And the interesting thing is Sounds Mack, altruistic. I guess so. Uh Mac was a respected academic and psychiatrist before he embarked on this alien abduction research. So he, mm. he wasn't he wasn't somebody people thought of as a kook, okay. at least not before this. But his work drew a lot of controversy. Uh, he was even investigated by the Harvard medical faculty at one point who were afraid that he was causing harm to his patients by confirming the reality of their delusions. Hmm. The, so, so what was his attitude really to? Yeah, yeah. Was it was he just like a shyster or? No, or? I I don't get that sense at all. But okay. he, but he also, it, it's hard to pin down exactly to what extent he believed in the reality of the alien, alien abductions. Abduction. Yeah. Uh, for example, he gave a quote to the BBC where he. It sounds like he's trying to avoid the appearance of having gone full Mulder. Okay. So he he says he says. I would never say, yes, there are aliens talking to people, but I would say there's a compelling, powerful phenomenon here that I can't account for in any other way that's mysterious. Yet I can't know what it is, 
but it seems to me that it invites deeper, further inquiry. So, I mean, that's a respectable point of view, I guess. You're just yeah. saying like, well, here's an interesting phenomenon. Uh, lots of people claim to have experienced something I don't really understand and I don't know. I've said this before in the Satanic Panic episode and other episodes where we talk about people having kind of out of body experiences as such, uh, that uh, it's not that I don't believe I, but I do believe that they believe. You yeah. Know? In a lot of situations, it's so real for them. It doesn't matter whether it was real or not. It's, it's affecting them. Right. Regardless. But despite that quote, I've read in other places and yeah. I've seen videos of Mac talking like on, on TV interviews and at conferences where he kind of comes off as committing a little more to the reality sure. of alien abductions than that quote would lead you to believe. So yeah. it, it seems like he, he was sort of presenting maybe some different kinds of levels of confidence in the reality of alien abductions at different times. Mm-hmm. Uh, so back to Chris Carter. Chris Carter, of course, uh, I don't know if we... Oh, yeah, I guess we should this. say I mean, this. He's Chris the showrunner of the X-Files. He created, created the X-Files, yeah. yeah. And so Carter claims that in the early 90s, Mac invited him to sit in on a regression hypnosis session with somebody who claimed to have had an alien abduction experience. Okay. And Carter found this experience very disturbing. It really stuck with him what he saw and I'm sure inspired a lot of these things in the X-Files where we yeah. see people undergo regression hypnosis. But but what was regression hypnosis really as practiced by Mac and, and the people who endorsed it? Well, Mac wrote a book. It was called Abduction, Human Encounters with Aliens. And in Mac's own words, it, quote, describes a clinical map of the abduction territory. And I I read through some parts of the book to see what Mac had to say about the experiences. And he sort of describes typical features of his interviews with abductees or experiencers, as he Mm. likes to call them. And while I think he maintained that the majority of his research was based on sort of standard face-to-face conversation, just talking to people, interviews, uh, conscious memories, he did employ the use of regression hypnosis to get new details. He liked to call it, instead of hypnosis, he called them relaxation exercises. Hmm. So he describes that this was like where he'd, he'd go through a series of patterns where he encouraged the, the subject to focus on breathing and relax all the parts of the body and visualize a safe space and then have the subject mentally return to that safe space periodically. It sounds like yoga. It sounds like Shavasana, what I do after I cool down after a yoga session. You know, I've noticed before some similarities between what people describe from the experience of hypnosis mm-hmm. and what people describe experiences of yoga or meditation. Yeah, well. And so there seem to be some similarities there. Mm-hmm. And maybe in, in introducing very mildly altered states of consciousness right. just by uh, intentional relaxation of the body and the mind. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, anyway, back to Mac, during the session, once he got people into these relaxation exercises, he would attempt to help the patient regress, to go back into memories that had been repressed by the conscious mind and recover new details. Like what? What are we recovering here? Because I keep thinking about this. Uh, I, I, are you familiar with the comedian Kyle Kinane? No. Well, uh, I've heard the name. But yeah, he's one of my favorite comedians, and he is on his latest album. He has this bit where he talks about repressed memories and uh-huh. using hypnosis to bring them back. And he jokes because he's like, "I wish I could repress memories." He says something along the lines of, uh, "Oh, you can repress memories. Tell me how, wizard." <laughs> 
So I want to I want to know what are they what are they bringing back up other than well this? I mean the idea of repressed memories goes way back in in psychology I mean Freud talked about repression of of memories mm. you know that you would you would hide memories of traumatic childhood experiences that okay. really influenced who you are but I, I think you you didn't have to be like a strict Freudian to yeah. believe in repressed memories I'm not sure it, how much science there is behind the idea of a repressed memory now I think that's highly debated. Mm. Uh, but anyway, what Max said he would do is that he claimed the value of regression in hypnosis is not necessarily to get people to recall like whole experiences that they never otherwise remembered, mm-hmm. but to sort of flesh out the details of already established memories and oh, also yeah. for therapeutic purposes. So we've seen this on plenty of television shows before. Like you were in a bank when it was robbed, but you couldn't at the time you didn't necessarily uh, pay attention to all the details of what certain people were wearing. But if we use hypnosis, we can make you go back to the present of that event. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And th- that's what he advocates. So okay. in one sense, I would say the kinds of regression hypnosis we see on the X-Files are probably not even an accurate portrayal of what the advocates of re- regression hypnosis would mm-hmm. say they do. Okay. So it's it's not even accurately showing what the people who think it works would say. Yeah, even though Chris <laughs> Carter participated in this. Well, I don't know what participated. Well, he watched. He sat there. But but you bring up a good point. Is there any reason to think it's a good way to get accurate information about what happened in the past? Yeah, even I'm if curious. only details I couldn't find any reason to think that this is a good way. Mac gave some defenses. So I'm going to, okay. I'm going to give some of his defenses of, of regression hypnosis. In Appendix A of the book I mentioned earlier, uh, the one about his clinical work with the people who claim to have had abduction experiences. Yeah. He defends the quality of the memories brought back through regression hypnosis by uh, saying they met three criteria. Number one, he said that the memories that that were brought out through regression were usually against self-interest, meaning that they were like more embarrassing or more damaging to self-regard of the patient. Yeah. Thus, this he's sort of arguing for this. I think that they wouldn't have a motivation to fabricate these memories since they're not flattering to the person. It's kind of like when you've got that roommate in college who drank too much the night before and did something really bad, right? And then they say, oh, I blacked out. (laughs) I don't remember any of that. Oh, I guess it could be kind of like that, but it would be like saying if you didn't believe what he was saying until mm-hmm. he started saying things that were really not flattering to his self image. Right, yeah. And then yeah, you yeah. can be like, oh, this probably did happen to Ted because, you uh-huh. know, he is admitting that he pooped in his pants. Okay, yeah, yeah. The second criterion is that he said that the memories recovered through aggression are more consistent with independent reports of other abductees. So once he'd do a regression on people, they started giving details that sounded a lot more like what all of the other people reported in their abduction stories. This was similar with the satanic panic stuff as well. Yeah. Yeah. And then the third criterion he gives is that memories brought up through regression tend to cause a much stronger emotional affect and bodily reaction in the subject. Hmm. People really seem seem to be having strong feelings about what was going on in the mm-hmm. memories recovered through their regressions. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that bait, even despite these defenses, I would have a persistent concern about the idea that hypnosis or any similar like relaxation exercise is going to recover accurate information that was not previously available to you. If you didn't already remember it, why is this exercise bringing these memories back? 
And why don't we have more physical evidence that these memories are better than the memories you consciously remembered at, at first look? Okay, but what would you say to using regression hypnosis to recollecting one of your past lives. <laughs> this comes up in an episode of the X-Files. Okay. I mean, this it's is the, obvi- it's the episode I was just joking about. The yeah, exactly. Yeah. The field where I died, where I, I think Mulder remembers being what? Somebody He's like a Civil, Civil War, War soldier or something like that. And some other woman who, uh, who they're currently like pursuing that's part of like a terrorist cell or something like that is, uh, was his wife, I believe. Yeah. In the past life. And Scully strange. was like his general. Well, yeah, this is where some of these accounts get way fishier than the ones I've already talked about. For example, there is a writer named Alexa Clay, and she grew up with John Mack. He was her mother's partner, and she had an interesting article on Mack that I read, and I want to read a a quote from her article. Mm -hmm. She says, I remember one summer evening at a beach house on Martha's Vineyard when I was about 11. We all watched as John regressed my aunt back into a past life. She lay on the couch recalling an incident in which she was a forest ranger who witnessed the death of a few people during some kind of avalanche. My aunt later told me she was fully conscious of the experience, but couldn't control what she was saying. It was like she was watching herself tell a story. John later tried to hypnotize my brother so that he wouldn't be afraid of spiders. (laughs) Seems like two very different things there. Recollecting your past life as a ranger and not being afraid of spiders. Yeah. And and so I got to say, you know, again, just we end up working on a lot of different things here at How Stuff Works on Brain Stuff. Uh, Ben Bolin, our colleague from Stuff They Don't Want You to Know, did an episode on hypnosis and how it works and whether it works. Yeah. And, and th- you know, there is some legitimacy to hypnosis. I don't want to um, yeah, I think say that, that, you know, it doesn't work at all. You should go watch that episode. It's a nice, like, little three, four-minute uh, summary of, of how it works. And we've even had some hypnosis experts come on and say that they're really happy that, you know, we broke down the actual science of it. But in this case... I think this is a little bit beyond what it's capable of. Yeah, I think this is a common thing. I mean, based on my understanding, I think hypnosis is capable kind of like meditation or yoga or something mm-hmm. of introducing a mildly altered state of consciousness where your, your brain's just kind of working a little bit different than it normally normally would. But I don't really see much evidence that it really has these these dramatically powerful effects okay. that people like this would claim. Um, so you think it, like maybe Mac was kind of a, a figure. I'm thinking of uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman in The Master. No, 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 I don't get that feeling because in his writing and his speech, Mac seemed to me like he was an extremely smart, thoughtful, even a wise person. But I read his reasoning for accepting a lot of the subduction testimony and it just doesn't sound very convincing to me. Yeah. It, okay. it, it seems like. He was a smart, thoughtful, good-natured guy who wanted to believe. Do you think, though, and you just hit on the prime X-Files slogan, he wants to believe, I want to believe. Do you think, though, that he would have believed in alien-human hybrids if one of his patients uh, pulled that memory up? Well, a lot of patients did talk about things like that. Did they really? Yeah, this is a common feature of alien abduction reports, especially at the time. I don't, I don't know. It seems like alien abduction reports 
have sort of dropped off in in recent years, as far as I can tell. Maybe yeah. I'm wrong about that, but or but, maybe it's just that there's not as much coverage on them because the media landscapes changed too. Yeah, it could be. But at the time, uh, Mac talks about working with a lot of people who would say that the aliens would say take uh, sperm samples from them or mm-hmm. take eggs from them or implant them with with eggs. Or uh, in some way have some kind of reproductive interaction with the person. Well, that is a perfect segue for us to talk about our last, and I think probably one of the things that the X-Files is known most for, topic-wise, which is the alien hybrid conspiracy, right? Mixing aliens and human beings together in some way or another. Yes, this is one of the the biggest overarching plot points in the whole series is that, uh, oh, man, it gets so convoluted by the end. Who knows what's actually going on? But uh, without spoiling too much uh, for the people who haven't actually seen the series yet, basically, there's a, there's a running theme of aliens wanting to hybridize or create some kind of some kind of blended offspring with Homo sapiens on planet Earth or to maybe go somewhere else or to maybe take yeah. over the Earth or who knows what. So alien-human hybrids, is there any reason to to track with the science on this that's offered by the show? Is there anything to it? So here's the thing about the show is that, I mean, it was on for nine seasons, right? And over the course, uh, they had so many different rationale and scientific explanations for what was going on with the hybridization that it was all over the place. I completely lost track of it. Yeah, if you try to add it all up, it, it doesn't really make sense in terms even of the fictional construct of the show, right? Yeah. But um, Cavalos takes all these ways and she breaks them down one by one. And uh, there is some viability to some of these ideas, although obviously... We don't have alien DNA that we can be experimenting with. So she's working <laughs> along the lines of what we know about genetics in general, okay? Uh-huh. Um, so she has five ways the show proposes that you can make a hybrid, an alien-human hybrid. And let's try to go through these and not get too bogged down. Sorry, one quick question before we breeze through these. Uh, the, this does have to assume, right, that the aliens would be DNA-based. Yeah, it, sure. Yeah. You you really just there's no way you could hybridize with an alien species that wasn't DNA based. Yeah, that's absolutely an assumption that they make here. All right. So the premise essentially of the show, the overall premise for these hybrids is that grays, which are, you know, the the generic aliens that we're all used to seeing with the big eyes and the big gray heads. Right. They're the ones uh, in the uh, sketch artist interpretation. of Exactly. Alien. Yeah. Uh, those are, in fact, hybrids of humans and aliens. Those aren't actually aliens in and of themselves. Uh, and they're, it seems to be that the reason why they're making these hybrids is so that there's a specific immunity to biological threats that might exist on Earth to the aliens that are trying to colonize the planet. Okay? That's as much as I think makes sense <laughs> of the, of, of that part. Um, so, okay, yes, some viruses can attack particular species, right? So, for instance, smallpox, which comes up in the show all the time, only attacks human beings. Uh, and here's a direct quote from Cavalos's book. A virus can only enter a cell if the proteins projecting from the surface of its envelope find matching receptors on the cell. So this is important to consider as we go forward with all of these things. It's a lot like in the last episode on the X-Files when we were talking about the parasites and how parasites are very specific about what other species that they 
they're parasitic of, right? right? They're, they're not like the face huggers that can apparently just get on any old animal that has a mouth. Yeah, exactly. And likewise, we're going to find that this is the case with a lot of these you know, biological threats or genetic manipulations that are being purported on the show. Uh, so I guess the premise here is that these aliens would are trying not to be susceptible to our diseases because they're not from here. But again, so why that wouldn't make sense, right? If they're not from Earth, why would they be susceptible to a disease like smallpox, which hasn't evolved to be tailored to their anatomy? Yeah, I mean, Earth-based diseases don't typically affect every species on Earth. They're very often aimed at one species. So even, even more so the difference between alien life forms and Earth life forms. And even hybrids, however, you know, they're made, would probably be susceptible to the same diseases that human beings are susceptible to, right? Or, or that the aliens were susceptible to. So changing the receptors on our cells, you know, they would prevent the necessary processes from regular life happening too. You know, manipulations on this scale, it messes up everything as a domino effect. Um, Cavalos also reminds us of one other thing before we get into these five theories. Uh, she says that it wasn't until the 1980s when genes were first transferred successfully from one species to another. So that might be one of the reasons why this was such a kind of popular idea on the show at the time, right? That it was just being pioneered and it was sort of like, it was like science fiction coming to life. Well, there were a lot of gene thrillers in the 90s. It was an era of Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Park. Yeah, yeah, Jurassic Park in the 90s was, uh, you know, the, the, as far as I know, the first real cloning-based science fiction movie that was a big success. Mm-hmm. There might have been one before that I can't remember, but, mm-hmm. but that was like the thing that brought that to the public's attention. And that's the era of the X-Files. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so our first way to create a hybrid, what, what would you imagine? Easiest way to create a hybrid? Uh, make two different animals of different species have sex and see if they get pregnant. You did it! Yeah, breeding. It's that simple, right? But it's not that simple because... Uh, the whole idea of the word species means that it's reproductively isolated. Yeah. So, so I, I think there are a lot of reasons that our concept of a species is is sometimes kind of fuzzy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that that's the most common definition is these animals won't naturally in the wild and probably can't breed with each other and produce viable offspring, especially not producing offspring that can breed through to the next generation. Exactly. Yeah. Because, and and I was about to get to that is that almost all of the species or rather the offspring that are created from any mixed species interactions are sterile. Yeah. So it doesn't lead to a lot. So a mule for is like our best example, right? When a male donkey and a female horse get together, they have a mule, but those mules are usually sterile. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've done combinations of horses and zebras. We've had lions and tigers, camels and llamas. Yes, those are all possible, but their offspring are almost always sterile. And humans can't produce offspring with any other species, even chimpanzees. Now, a chimpanzee shares 99.5% of our DNA, and there has been some speculation there is something out there called the human Z. This is a popular urban legend. Yeah. Right? That is, uh, uh, some, somewhere along the line, somebody figured it out. Uh, there's both, there's, there's speculation that it was done in Russia and in China, uh, but that human Zs were created in labs somewhere, the, the combination of those two species. This hasn't never been proven. There's reports, but there's no evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's number one, breeding, okay? Number two, 
uh, do you remember that episode Red Museum on X-Files? And then there's also the episode 731. Basically, the idea here is that a doctor injects children with alien substances and says, oh, th- these are just vitamins. I'm just giving you vitamins. Uh, but they're really trying to make them into hybrids. Were they Flintstone vitamins to create hybrids? <laughs> yeah, they tasted, they were chewy and sugary. Mm. Mm. So it's a serum in these episodes. And I guess the, the fictional science in the show says, well, the serum contains antibodies that are mixed with, quote, synthetic corticosteroids. Corticosteroids or corticosteroids? Is that how you say it? Well, I don't know. I mean, I have no idea. Steroids and cor- cortico. Yeah, sure. Let's go with it. Costco steroids. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, so the show says uh, that these children, or rather, not the show, but Cavello says this wouldn't make the children hybrids by just injecting them. Why would it do that? Right? Yeah. yeah. All you're doing is you're mixing alien and human molecules together, right? In a in a similar system. So theoretically. The different antibodies that are in this serum, they may help fight off a range of diseases, but they're not, again, they're probably not going to fight off any range of diseases that are on Earth. Yeah. Because they're going to, the alien uh, antibodies are going to be adapted for diseases from wherever they're from. Yeah. Okay. The other thing is that our human bodies would probably react to alien antibodies as if they were invaders, right? So our immune system would try to destroy them. So this doesn't go a long way towards helping the hybrid possibilities either. No, I mean, our our immune system often rejects and attacks donated human tissue. If Uh somebody wants to give you an organ, it it very likely could be a problem that your immune system will not like that organ being in there. Right, so aliens are probably out, although Cavalos has... She she actually brings back the corticosteroids that we mentioned earlier. She says that maybe that's what helped. Maybe maybe one of these X-Files writers did some research and thought that this would work out. So corticosteroids are hormones, and they help to control our metabolism, mineral balance, and our inflammatory processes, okay? They're injected specifically to decrease our immune responses, so there's some idea here that maybe you would inject those. Those would lower the immune responses, which would then allow the alien antibodies to somehow coexist without being attacked by our immune system. To do magic. Yeah, and yeah the magic would happen. Uh, they also, the corticosteroids also elevate our moods. They stimulate our appetites. They also have pretty bad long-term effects, Mus- muscle wasting, mood swings, slow healing, weakened bones, and the formation of fatty deposits on the surface of our skin. So, you know, doesn't sound like an ideal way to go about making a hybrid. No, not at all. So you said, are there a couple more ways? There are three more. Oh. All right. The er- Erlenmeyer flask. Do you remember that episode? Oh, that was in the That's first like season, wasn't it? Classic. Uh, mythos episodes of the X-Files. It was back when the myth arc episodes were, were exciting. I, as the series goes on, the Monster of the Week episodes sometimes are still good, but the myth arc episodes become more and more disappointing. Yeah, I mean, I tend to agree with you. I, I, it's funny because I go back now and almost all my favorite episodes are Monster of the Week stuff. Uh, but anyways, in the Erlenmeyer flask, the premise there for the hybridization, was that they were cloning alien bacteria that also contained an alien virus, and they were taking the genes from that virus and inserting them into terminally ill human beings. And this is where we get these uh, the original hybrids, you remember on the show, that were like, they looked like people, but they had green blood and inhuman streak. Wasn't it the poison blood? Like, if they started bleeding, people around them would get burning on their eyes and 
start choking. Yeah, yeah. And they were like strong and they could like, I think one guy like could breathe underwater or something like that. So there were all these weird abilities. So, all right. Cavellus helps us break this down again. Again, an alien virus probably wouldn't be made of the same DNA building blocks as those of us in human beings, right? So they would be incompatible genetic, let's call them languages. Mm. But they mention that this alien DNA contains, this is in the episode, they contain two additional nucleotides or bases. And uh, there actually are possible other nucleotides that exist on Earth than the ones that are in human DNA, right? But they're not used in the DNA of any organism that we know of. But if you use these in some way, it would be sort of like taking the alphabet. Let's stick with this alphabet analogy and giving it two more letters, right? So you add uh, just two make-believe or, or brand-new letters to the alphabet one day. All of a sudden, you have all these new possible combinations, right? All these combinations or even ways in which you could shorten other things because of these added extra elements to the language. Well, they hypothesize, Cavellas hypothesizes, that one of these might be used as an infectious virus, right? So one of these different combinations of the alphabet of DNA uh-huh. is used to create an infectious virus that leads to this hybridization. Right? This is getting complicated. It is. It's complicated, right? Yeah. Uh, so, all right. There's still a compatibility problem. Like, no matter how you do it, it's like if you're trying to play, like, an Xbox game on a PlayStation. Yeah. Right? It's What if first we put the PlayStation game in the case of a Nintendo Wii game? Yeah. Or if you blow on it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It still doesn't work. Um, So... The, the compatibility problem basically comes down to the protein envelopes that contain DNA, right? And in this case, it would contain alien DNA. It probably wouldn't enter our cells. Uh, but they do come up with, Cavalis again, she's always like going the extra mile trying to help the show out to, to get there. She says, what if the alien DNA was placed into the protein envelope of an Earth virus? Like smallpox. Mm. So maybe that's what this whole smallpox thing is about. It's not, they're using the protein envelope of it to deliver alien DNA. That's her hypothesis. It could potentially get the virus into our human cells, but again, the DNA would have to be like our own human DNA for it to do anything more than just physically get there, okay? Okay, but what about all this green toxic blood? I mean, yeah. why why would the blood turn green, and is that even possible through hybridization? Well, believe it or not, uh, not through hybridization, but yeah, it is possible to use transgenics in order to give species green blood that don't have them. That has been done. Oh wow! Um, so uh, in this particular instance, it's been it's been done on fish. There's a green fluorescent protein. Uh, in jellyfish, and if you take that gene and you insert it into fish, you know, I make I make it sound like it's that easy. You just insert it. Obviously, there's a lot more to it than that. But yeah, they uh, their blood turns green. So this is these are like glow stick fish. Yeah, I mean, I you think could, you break them in half and then you dance with them in a wave. <laughs> I wouldn't break it in half, but I think what the reasoning was was that they were doing this to these fish that so that they could like under a microscope see things better than they could w- with its regular hue. Okay, and I'm not quite sure how that works, but yeah. So there was like an actual reason. It wasn't just like, hey, can we make this green? You know, like they they were they were seeing like what kind of benefits they could get out of it. 
This also goes along with the breathing underwater thing. Okay. So there's this episode. It might be in the Erlenmeyer flask where like one of these hybrid guys like goes through this horrible heart, uh, car chase and he crashes his car off of like a pier and lands in the water and they can't find his body. And then it turns out like he's been for two days. He's just been sitting at the bottom of this, uh, a bay. Uh, and they explain, well, it's because he's an alien hybrid. He can breathe underwater. Or but whatever. why didn't he swim somewhere? Well, I think, I think he was injured or something like that. I don't remember <laughs> the details there. <laughs> but, um, so, all right. We can't change our respiratory system with transgenics, right? But Cavalos hypothesizes another way that this could be explained. All right. So crocodiles, you know that how crocodiles can survive for long periods of time underwater? Mm-hmm. Well, the way that they do that is the ions in them bind to hemoglobin in a different way than they do in human beings. And this releases oxygen even when they're underwater and they're not bringing in oxygen. Huh. Cavalos hypothesizes that if you inserted a crocodile gene into humans, we may be able to do the same thing. So it wouldn't change our respiratory process. It would just change the way that hemoglobin and ions in our body react together. It it wouldn't trade lungs for gills. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's number three. This kind of transgenics, I guess, is how we could encapsulate that. Yeah. Again, you know, I don't think that you could like hybridize an alien and a human together, but you might be able to make your blood green. Things that aren't exactly like superpowers. Yeah. The fourth way, you remember back in home, we were talking about chimeras, right? Well, what if we had alien human chimeras? So remember a chimera is an organism that has two different sets of DNA and they usually originate from the fusion of two different zygotes or eggs, right? So what if we had an alien egg and a human egg and we fused those together? Nice. So maybe we then we've got this alien hybrid, okay? Let's see where Cavalos goes with this. She says, uh, well, right now that we can make from cells of the spa- same species or from different ones chimeric cells, right? We've done this with mice before. Uh, we've made a, a mouse that is a, a chimera of two different species of mouse, and that was created back in 1961. So this has been going on for a while now. Chimeras, however, are not usually like 50-50 blends of species, right? It's not like one half of you is mouse and the other half of you is shark, right? Like you're, <laughs> you're, you're, uh, it, it's a little different from that. So like they've, they've made goat sheep chimeras before uh-huh. and those look like sheep, but they've got like the same bristly fur of goats. Okay. okay? So it's not like, it's not like, I guess we're imagining like you'd have a blend of perfect, uh, 50-50 features. So, yeah, she says it's possible you could use these same chimeric techniques that you use to make these goat sheep or these these weird mice uh, to make a human female carry an alien hub- human hybrid to term. But uh, look, this uh, the science that she throws down in there. This is why I think the book is really good, but it doesn't translate well for this medium on a podcast. It's way too complicated to get into here. I think we could do a whole episode just on the idea of uh, chimeric fertilization and like getting a, a chimeric baby to term. Well, maybe we should sometime. It sounds very stuff to blow your mind, so it's possible. And we got one more. This is the last one, and this is what she calls the fully integrated hybrid, which is uh, in the TV show. It's along the lines of like when we see um, uh, like – 
clones of people, right? There's like multiple, like there's multiple Joes. There's like 12 different Joes and they all look exactly like you, mm-hmm. but they're all alien human hybrids. And she hypothesizes that this is because every cell contains DNA from both of the organisms. Okay. So, so that's kind of hard to imagine, but yeah, yeah, I agree. It seems like it would be pretty difficult. The, the idea that she's pitching here is that you would create a single transgenic or hybrid cell, right? And then from there, you would use that with what we have as like modern cloning techniques. So think of like Dolly the sheep. Um, so we know we can clone an animal from an embryo cell by taking its nucleus out and transferring DNA into uh, from it into an ovum, right? Right. That's how that's sort of how Dolly the sheep worked, right? There's a transplantation of a cell's nucleus into an ovum uh, with its own nucleus removed. So this is her pitch for this: is that we would do something similar. We'd we'd have an alien hybrid cell, and then we would clone a being based off of that cell. But it's more difficult. Uh, so for instance, like with Dolly the sheep, it's, it was particularly difficult because it was adult cells. They've already differentiated. Right. There's all different kinds of ways that you can get DNA into a cell though. And again, like this, this could be a, a whole hour long episode of stuff to blow your mind, but we can do things like using high voltage electricity to allow DNA to enter into a cell or we micro inject uh, these directly into cells with teensy tiny little needles. Or, this one sounds like my favorite, this has been done. Shooting cells with high-velocity microscopic DNA bullets. Yeah, the gene gun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, she pitches, like, those are all ways that we could potentially have these alien-human hybrids. But let me go back to the beginning and say, on the show it doesn't add up, right? They don't they don't stick to one of these and follow it all the way through. It's just kind of a mishmash of all of these things. Huh. So maybe the aliens themselves in the X-Files really haven't ironed this out yet. <laughs> there that would be a wonderful thing that I don't know, have we ever seen that in science fiction where there's just a completely disorganized <laughs> attempt to attack and take over the earth? It's just like, like the aliens like, really can't get it together. <laughs> I don't know. Independence Day? No, they're so highly coordinated. Were they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I want to see that. Maybe Plan 9 from Outer Space. That seems like uh, an attempt to take over the Earth is kind of thrown together at the last minute. Yeah, although I think you could blame that on Ed Wood more than you could on the aliens. Yeah, I guess so. So, there you have it. The Science of the X-Files. We've got two episodes, and I think we're looking at almost three hours worth of Science of the X-Files goodness here for you. Uh, if you have any questions or comments for us, if you want to let us know some of your hypotheses on ways in which science, modern science could apply to X-Files episodes, some of the science we're talking about here, alien hybridization, the B-weaponization, whatever it is, let us know. We're everywhere, right? Yeah, you can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, where our handle is Blow the Mind, or you can catch us on Periscope at noon Eastern Standard Time on Fridays, or you can go to the best of all possible worlds, stufftoblowyourmind.com. Yep. That is the mothership mm-hmm. uh, that will beam you up and do experiments on your body, but in a good way, so you should check it out. And if you want to write to us directly, if you want to, you know, you don't want the whole world to see what you're saying to us, we've got something private you want to 
say maybe you were an alien abductee and you have a, a, an argument with us about our portrayal of regression hypnosis. Let's say. Let's say that's it. Uh, write to us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.